welcome to the Innovation Roundtable Insights Podcast. This episode was recorded in Chicago, Illinois at an Innovation Roundtable workshop hosted by Bosch in June 2017, where our colleague Leonard sat down with Aaron Bjork, the Principal Group Program Manager at Microsoft, to discuss agile innovation and the opportunities and challenges faced by Microsoft in integrating agile processes at scale. Other topics discussed include the importance of uncovering latent customer need based on observation and feedback, how Microsoft's self-organized teams are constructed, and the importance of physical spaces for innovation. Aaron, thank you very much for your presentation, and also thank you for joining me in uh, my little uh, studio right here. Great to be here, yes. Um, maybe we can dive into the interview by you just briefly explaining uh, who you are, what company you work for, and then what role you uh, have at the moment. Sure. Yeah, so my name is Aaron Bjork. I'm a uh, principal group program manager at Microsoft, and I work in a, a division that we call the developer division. So that's where we build uh, tools for developers, uh, tools that we sell to developers, but also tools that we run our first-party engineering system on. Um, and, and that's what I do. Like now you've been um, talking about, you know, Agile and Scrum without mentioning the words too much, w yes. which was interesting, but yeah. you've uh, clocked all the principles at least, uh, yeah. if, if people know what it is. How does it fit into the larger framework of innovation within Microsoft or are you operating in the small bubble uh, in that division? Sure. I think, um, I think all of Microsoft is really going through a, an agile transformation. It's really a cultural transformation at a lot of levels. Um, we have a lot of products. We have a lot of services. We have a lot of different parts of our business. And every part of those businesses is on a bit of their own journey, if you will, to reinvent the, their approach and the way that they build software. Um, for, for us, I think that agile is, is more of a culture than it is a, a thing that we do or a religion that we follow. Um, it's a mindset, and it's a mindset that we want to be uh, continually learning, uh, continually innovating, uh, and continually delivering. And we found that when we apply that culture to our products, we get a better result, we get happier customers, and uh, the sort of satisfaction of our employees goes up. So it seems to check all the boxes in terms of being a better way to work. Now, you've been on a path that is already, I mean, in that fast-moving world, at least six years in. Yeah. Um, how? What are the challenges and what have the challenges been if you put agile and big organization like into one word, one sure. sentence? Sure. I think, um, I think one of the biggest challenges, and it's not necessarily a challenge that we had, but I see it a lot from other organizations, is that to go big with Agile, you have to get, you have to get the organization bought in, top to bottom. And that means that your, your leadership team needs to accept a new way of working and encourage it and support it. And, uh, and they, the way they do that, I think, is by asking a new set of questions. Uh, most of our leaders in big organizations today uh, built their careers uh, working in a different era. Uh, and and they need to evolve their thinking and their approach and not just roll out the playbook that they had from 10, 15 years ago uh, that, that proved very successful in that time but might not be a perfect fit for the needs of, of today's world. Um, at Microsoft, and, and particularly in the group that I work in, in the developer division, again, it's about 3,000 people, uh, we had a lot of top-down support. So we had... Uh, very senior leaders, we had vice presidents saying to us, 
we want you to work differently. Go try it. And I think one of the big challenges that we see in those journeys, uh, again, ours is six years long, but one of the big challenges is not giving up. Uh, we've talked a lot at this conference about failure, and, and there's certainly been things that we've done wrong along the way. But when something goes wrong, it's not a reason to stop everything and reverse course and go back. And that's why we have a, a mindset that we talk about called a roll forward mindset. We're going to continually improve. Uh, the only way we're going to continually improve is by continually evaluating. And uh, when we evaluate, we're going to find things that are working well and things that aren't working well. And when we find things that aren't working well, we set out to fix them instead of having them scare us into thinking that uh, we need to start over or, or reverse course. And I think that is one of the biggest challenges when you're trying to do agile at scale. Um, agile for a team is, I don't want to say it's simple, but it's a lot easier. You know, you get 8 to 12 people together. You talk about it. You work together. You're all in the same room. You figure it out. And, and there's a lot of great practices and approaches that help make that successful. But I, I feel like big agile is a little bit more art than science. And it takes a lot more hard work in that regard. Now, you've been stressing how important it is to check whether customers or users or whoever you are developing for sure. uh, along the way. Um, how do you, what methods or approaches do you use for uncovering more the latent needs or the unspoken needs or uh, the needs that are not so easy uh, surfaceable in there? Sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of feedback we get from customers through, um, you know, tools that we have, social media, bugs, and things like that. And you're right, they're very, typically they're very um, direct. You understand those things. But I think One of the things that we do as, a, as an organization is we do a lot of uh, customer visits and where we will actually go uh, send folks from our team, both PMs and engineers, and we will visit a customer and, and just talk to them. Part of it might be observing how they use our tools, but the second part is really talking to them about it. And we've had to learn a lot of uh, approaches in those conversations to make sure we're getting sort of beyond the surface and A lot of that has to do with sort of active listening and, and you know, I have this uh, trick I do with people all the time where they ask me a question and, um, or, or they make a statement and I just say, tell me more. Like, like, I'm not ready to start talking. I need to hear what's beyond that, that initial statement. And typically customers are pretty good. They just need somebody on the other end of the conversation who's, who's willing to approach it that way. But um, that's been a super useful tool that we use. How is this feedback uh, incorporated into into the development? Is it a, a one on one, or, or how does it is it filtered some way? Or sure, yeah, all of them, all of our like all of our teams are are uh, led by two individuals. We have an engineering manager who who leads the development, obviously, and then we have a program manager who leads the uh, what we're doing and why we're doing it. So when we find um, new things that we want to do in a part of the product, it's the program manager's job to really prioritize those asks. And, and, um, and we have a process that we follow. Uh, we will turn those ideas into storyboards. We will then uh, talk to customers about their storyboards and get their feedback to see if we're getting it right. We might build a prototype. And we'll do all of that before we really spec it and get it sort of plugged into um, an engineering team. Uh, that, that process can be pretty quick for small things. It might take three, four months for something larger. Um, but it's happening in parallel with the team doing high-value work. So our, our program managers who play the role of product owner are always working really well ahead of the team to make sure that we have well-groomed, well-understood, high-value work uh, teed up for them. And, and that's the approach that we take. 
Now with the teams, it's an it's an interesting setup that you uh, that you've been uh, coming up with, and I think you called it self-forming teams on that process yeah. of, you know, uh, that people can pick who and on what they uh, who they want to work with, and then yeah. what to work uh, on. Yeah. Uh, what have been the initial challenges in in doing that? I mean, you've been through three rounds, uh, if I remember correctly, and and how do you manage that process? How long does it take until you know the teams can start working? Yeah. So I think. Um, Every time we've done it, you learn a little bit more. I think the at the beginning, the hardest thing was just learning to um, trust that it was going to work itself out. You know, I think it was scary. It was scary for everybody involved. But um, we've learned that, uh, one, it's very important for teams to have charter and for people to understand who's going to be leading the teams. They want to know that. So everybody needs to know what the team might be doing and who's going to be involved from sort of a leadership level. And... And that's a key component. So we make sure we establish those things first and uh, and, and set those up. Um, I think the second thing, uh, kind of to your point in time frame, is that we're actually super deliberate about taking the team through a process. So we will roll it out and say, hey, we're going to um, rejigger the teams a little bit and we're going to go through this process. And here's the schedule we're going to follow. It might be that we're not going to, you know, we're in sprint 118 now. We're going to have the new teams assembled by sprint 120 or 121, but we're going to take the next sprint. We're not going to disrupt work that's going on, but we're going to take the next sprint to work it out. And we're going to be having one-on-one -on -one conversations based on people choices. So I think one of the, the key learnings has just been to um, not let the process take too long, but also give it enough time so that you get it right. And it's clean. Everybody needs that clean break. And then we have a single day where we say, okay, We're all shifting into new teams now. Um, our desks are on wheels and things like that. So we have some fun with it. You know, we bring in food and, and you kind of take the afternoon off and everybody reshuffles. And um, it's surprising how much energy gets kind of gets reinfused into a building when you go through a process like that. So, And maybe in terms of profiles in the teams and also skills sure. and capabilities, how are they set together? How, and how, how do you make sure that not in one team... There's a bunch of engineers in a narrow, specific yeah. topic, and then it's not a, a really. A so when when teams when when uh, individuals make their selections, uh, they're 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 indicating their first, second, and third choice, and then the the leads for those teams have a, a joint meeting together where they place people on the teams, and part of that exercise is ensuring that we have the right balance of seniority and skill set. Um, a lack of a skill set to me is not necessarily a problem. As long as, uh, like, we might only have one person on the team that's really good at something, but part of their charter then is going to be to train up some new experts in that. And so I see that as opportunity, not as a problem. But you're right, we do have to get the, the mix right, and that's um, part of the job of the team. Uh, the team leads to kind of go figure that out. Um, another aspect of that that I, I didn't really talk about in the talk, but we do place some people ahead of time. So there are the, the really key people. You kind of think of them as your rock stars, and you know where you need them. And we go before the exercise and approach those people and say, hey, I need you on this team. Uh, you're critical. You're strategic. And I need you here. And so when that person goes and puts their yellow sticky on the wall, we know where they're going to put it. Uh, so we're playing a little bit of a game there. But um, that's just to ensure exactly what you said, that we have the right balance and we're not creating you know, a really strong team over here and a really weak team over here. And then what was interesting as well, and maybe you can elaborate on that a bit more, is like slowly uh, putting different uh, 
functions into one team and then really tearing down department functions or function functions then really putting them into one team how does that work out yeah i mean we've just learned that um those departmental functions or maybe their horizontal layers in 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 your architecture that we all tend to gravitate to you know kind of this is my corner and this is what i do and we found that the more of those that we have the more difficult it is we just have more red tape more handoffs more dependency management that we have to deal with so we've looked for places where we can eliminate them uh a couple of places we've eliminated the the developer discipline and the test discipline and we put them together into an engineering discipline super disruptive but we found it's it's better uh we're getting better results out of it uh we talked a little bit about how our program managers are really involved a lot more in in marketing activities now so they're not asking for a marketing team to tell them how they're going to sell the product or how they're going to talk about it they're responsible for a lot of that and so uh in some ways we're just taking kind of specialized roles that a lot of different people used to do and we're kind of putting them together into more of a hybrid skill set and then giving people hopefully autonomy and purpose to go uh implement that skill set uh on something that's strategic to our business In the first place, how do you know the, the teams work on specific features? Could be features or, or different ideas. In the really beginning, when ideas pop up, sure. how are then resources allocated? Or what what is the process if if, if teams or individuals start with an idea and say, yeah. "This is something I would like to work on. I think this is valuable." Yeah. So I think even when um, even when we have new new things that come up, we still kind of staff them the same way. So a team might have something new that they're starting. Um and we don't treat the work any differently. We we still want them to send their sprint mail. We want them to talk about uh the progress they're making. We want them to have a, a reasonable finish line in sight so that they can deliver something end to end. Uh so as much as we can, we try to approach that work the exact same way. Uh the key is is in uh and I think we've learned this lesson sort of the hard way is that when we build new things, we want to quickly get to an an end to end slice. through the entire aspect of it because once you have that you have something that you can put in front of customers or real users and get feedback on them so um instead of building like a layer at a time and then hoping it all works we we try to build like a thin slice through all layers and then learn from the feedback that we get from uh, from doing that implementation and then from what uh, customers are telling us about it How are resources allocated or how are projects or idea projects funded or teams funded in, sure. in the end? So um we think about we we tend to fund um we fund through teams. So teams have a similar size makeup. So I don't think about the number of engineers I have on a project. I think about the number of teams I have on a project. And the uh the process of selecting where we're going to make those investments happens at our leadership team level. uh folks like myself are involved in that. I give a lot of input into my areas on what I think we need, what are the business metrics that I think we need to move. And then twice a year, we sit down and kind of review our our 18-month look ahead plan and we look if there are places we want to make adjustments. I would say every 6 months we're probably tweaking. We might say, well, we have three teams working in this space and we want to go up to four because we feel like we need to accelerate progress a little bit. Um and then that just leaves us with a question. Do you repurpose a team to be the fourth team? Do you grow a new team? If if we're going to grow a new team, do we have headcount to do that? Um so there's no formula that goes into it, but I think what what you should hear is that uh we have sort of a, a culture and a philosophy that twice a year we're going to look at that together and and make good decisions. And uh there's a lot of judgment that goes into into those type of things. 
what kind of KPIs do you use? And I know from a technology perspective, it's not so difficult sure. to, to, to set up some KPIs, but what is more an art, maybe rather than a science, is setting up uh, KPIs in terms of how well the proposition fits with the needs of the customer. Yeah. How do you, uh, me do you measure that and, and how do you track progress? We do. So we have, um, we have two types of KPIs. We have the KPIs, which are around sort of our engineering metrics. We have a set of those um, that we monitor and look after and, and they kind of show you the the overall general health of a team you know and um and we, we don't have a lot but we but we have those the business metrics though are a little bit different and more interesting and we've stolen a lot of the uh, not stolen but we've used a lot of the thinking from eric reese from the lean startup and in, in trying to really identify hey there's a metric here that we want to move and we have a hypothesis about how we will move that metric And then we're going to go do something and then watch to see if it actually does move. Um, and then that leads to a conversation. But um, one very useful metric that we're using uh, more recently is called uh, NPS. It stands for Net Promoter Score. And it's a, it's a really, um, it's kind of an up and coming metric in, in technology. And it's, it's very, really quite simple. You ask people a simple question. Would you recommend my product to your friends and peers? And they have to, they have a, a scale that they give it. Uh, Uh, a score of nine to 10 means they would absolutely recommend it. Seven to eight is kind of a maybe. And six to zero is no, I wouldn't recommend it. And that's a metric which tells us if our product is sort of resonating with users. Is it landing? Is it creating happiness? And we run uh, a survey every two months to look at that metric. We evaluate the results. We get verbatims. And then we say, How do we think the work that we're doing is actually going to move that metric? And we ask teams to be thoughtful about that. So it's an example of a KPI that is more about customer satisfaction and business than it is engineering metrics, but um, it's very real to our business. How do you evaluate performance of the teams? I mean, now we've been talking about the metrics in those different parts. Is it then team performance that you evaluate? And now I mean evaluation in terms of compensation and and, sure. and as well uh, incentives. And, and is it on, on an individual level as well or how does it work? So all of our compensation in our performance system is individual. So we don't do team-based compensation or team-based um, reviews, if you will. Um, and so it's, it's individual compensation. It relies a lot on peer feedback. And, uh, and we have a process that we follow there um, that, that kind of runs throughout the year. Um, I do think, though, that we... We have uh, things that we know indicate whether a team is performing well or is not performing well. So when I, when I have a team and, I, and I'm talking to them and I might ask them, you know, when, when is this feature, when will this feature be delivered? And uh, they might say, well, it'll be delivered in two sprints. And I say, great. And then two sprints go by and is the feature delivered? Um, sometimes they say, well, it's not quite done and it's going to take us three sprints. And then they get to the end of three sprints and they go, ah, it's not quite done. And You know, those are kind of simple ways where you can find that um, a team isn't operating super smoothly or maybe is having trouble estimating or not doing a much uh, spiking and prototyping to understand what they're really building. We have a set of things that, that we look at with teams which help us understand the high-performing teams from the low-performing teams. Uh, but I think, you know, when we see a team that's struggling, the, the thing we want to do is just get involved and help them. Uh, to me, it's not, a, it's not really about punishing them. 
um, or rewarding them for being super healthy. It's about sort of encouraging them. Hey, what are you guys not doing that other teams are doing? And how can we uh, trade notes and maybe um, offer us some suggestions for improvement? So, what is the role of the what was called the PM program manager? Yeah, program manager. Yeah. 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 That is present in every team. Right? Every team, yeah. So, what is the role of this uh, this person in in terms of managing these teams, and what capabilities in terms of leadership also sure. is necessary in, in your sure. Perspective? So, so they're they're very much like a product owner in Scrum terms. Um, I described I've described the role as three things. Uh, you're going to talk to customers and listen to what they want. You're going to be building for customers what they need, and you're going to apologize for everything that you're not doing. And uh, what that really means is you own the backlog. So our PMs own the backlog for their teams. Uh, they own what's being built and why we're building it. And they're responsible to make business decisions about what comes next and why it comes next. So uh, in terms of skill set, we rely on our PMs to be great communicators. Um, they have to be just phenomenal sort of with people. Uh, it's just a, that you need a lot of those soft skills, if you will. Um, we We... Look for PMs who have a real interest in a space and want to have domain knowledge and expertise because it's hard to be the owner of a backlog if you don't care about the backlog, right? So we look for people who have um, uh, an interest in a space and, and want to learn it, want to study it, want to know what competitors are doing. Um, and then we also look for our PMs to be fairly good at um, design. We think of our PMs not as designers, but they are responsible for what's being built. And so they need to recognize you know, are we building a good user experience here? Does it flow right? And there's a, there's a bit of an art that comes into that. It's not sort of Photoshop-style design skills. It's more uh, user experience design skills, and we look for that as well. Um, but those are some of the, the big components that, that we look for uh, when we look for, for new PMs. Now, you've been mentioning space as being a, an important pillar, and I'm quite happy uh, that you mentioned that because I think it's neglected by many, yeah. many other companies and that you've been retrofitting, and, it, and often it's uh, difficult uh, with yeah. architectural um, constraints that, that are present. Um, what is your, your vision or your idea about the space, and, and how do you change it uh, throughout, in, step by step? Yeah, I think, for, uh, I think it starts with just kind of a simple kind of uh, explanation that walls between people just get in the way, and, uh, and we've learned that physical walls and, and non-physical walls. And so... Yeah, we've made an investment to remove as many physical barriers as we can. And our, our goal is to create working environments for teams that encourage collaboration, encourage the right amount of disruption within the team, and, um, and hopefully help people be super efficient when they're working together. So um, our goal, I think, as Microsoft is to get people out of their comfy offices and get them into a more collaborative environment. And As we've been going through this transformation, we're, we're learning from each new building that we're, we're building and applying those learnings to the next one. Uh, but I think it absolutely works. Uh, I can remember very clearly having my office right next door to my engineering manager's office. I remember walking down the hall and knowing that I needed to talk to her, but I saw their door was closed, and so I didn't knock. You know, I would go into my office, which is right next door, and then I'd send her an email or IM her. And... Uh, nowadays, our desks sit face-to-face, -face, and if I have something I need to say, I just lean over and say, hey, Valentina, do you have a, do you have a second? Can we catch up? And um, the amount that we interact and collaborate, I think, is easily 4x what it was before. 
And um, it's just because we're in the same physical space. Uh, so I think, I think our goal is to uh, yeah, get people from out from behind their walls and get them uh, together as much as possible. And we think that in the end, it's going to lead to a better environment for, for building software and better products. What about the fact that sometimes people really need to be focused and they put on their headphones, I guess? Yeah. Or... So one of the things we did is we, we went out and bought everybody uh, a nice set of headphones. So you had three that you could choose from, you know, the over the ear or the earbuds or whatever you, you did. Um, the team rooms as well, they're, they're very much set up with um, every team room has uh, what we call focus rooms on them. So they're smaller spaces designed for maybe two to four people, uh, couches, you know, comfortable furniture. And it's, it's very common to see those rooms filled a lot because there are times when you need to take a conference call or you just say, hey, I want to like, I need to really think about this. Um, and I, I don't want to be in, a, in an environment where somebody might, be, might interrupt me. Um, so the rooms are outfitted in that way such that they have, uh, they have the big collaborative space, but they also have the, the individual space as needed. Uh, the difference is that we, you don't reserve those rooms. They're, they're sort of ad hoc and you use them on demand and, and culturally people just figure out how to make that work. So. Now, Aaron, you have been, uh, been into it a bit in the, in your presentation and in your talk. Uh, why has innovation or why has product development not been like that before? Uh, not like this before? Not like this agile, flexible, customer-centric way of working. And you've been briefly mentioning it, if I recall right, in your presentation that there was a different set of methodology yeah. in a different time. Yeah, I just think it has to do with the fact that um, yeah, times have changed. I mean, if I... If I look back to, you know, let's look back 15 or 20 years ago. I mean, 20 years ago, the internet didn't exist. Uh, we were still building software 20 years ago, but, but we barely had the internet. I mean, it did exist, but we barely had it. Um, today, if you and I wanted to, we could, we could stop what we're doing for the next 15 minutes. We could download tools. We could build software together, and we could deliver it to somebody around the world uh, by the end of the day. That, that's not an impossible task. In, in fact, I wouldn't even break a sweat thinking about doing that. That would be fun to go do. And so I think part of it is just that there's a realization that, that the world has changed. And um, I think what we found is that most of us and human nature is to just keep doing what we've always done. And so we had a, an approach and a way to build software that, again, worked super well in its era, but just doesn't work as well in today's era. And so I think for the past uh, really probably 10 years, we've been on a journey as an industry to discover a new and better way. And uh, I think more and more organizations are buying into that and realizing that if they try some new things, if they innovate, if they not only innovate with their technology, but they innovate with their culture and their process, um, that they're likely to get a better result and build a better working environment where uh, the next generation of products can be built. Aaron, thank you very much for uh, your talk and your th that uh, comfortable and pleasant conversation. Thank you. The video version of this podcast can be accessed via innovationroundtable.online. The Innovation Roundtable online network is your portal to a wide variety of exclusive content, including video presentations, interviews, insights reports, and articles. Not only that, innovationroundtable.online is also a place where you can connect with other corporate innovators, share experiences, request collaborations, and gain inspiration from your peers. 
our network is exclusively for innovation practitioners and large firms. So visit innovationroundtable.online to discover more and request your seven-day free trial account.